Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Thank you for the reading of the word. I'm so glad you made it here today. It is, a be- is it still a beautiful day out there? Lord Jesus, we pray for no thunderstorms this afternoon because we want to go barbecue. And if you love barbecue, say amen, amen. Man, I love your, you guys are actually smiling this morning. I love you guys. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, man, I'm so glad you made it here today. You say, God bless you. All right, you guys doing well? All right, turn to your other neighbor and say, man, I am glad you made it. All right, so there are four dimensions of sin, according to one expert. Are we going to be talking about sin today? Yeah, just a little bit. I'm your pastor. I get to say what I want to say, okay? It's my turn now. I'm not going to go long. This isn't going to be a long exposition on sin, but I just want to talk quickly about the four dimensions of sin. The first one, we'll call it gross sin or big sin. We all can identify this. This is uh, the scandal. This is you going to Vegas and doing things you shouldn't do, right? And you don't tell anybody about it. Like what stays in Vegas stays there or what's done stays there. Whatever. What happens? Right? It's a word salad this morning. Um, that, that, that's big sin. When we, think of, when we think of sin, we usually only think of it like this. We think of it in scandal. We think of it, well, at least I'm not a psychopath murdering people on the streets. I must be good with God, right? And yet there's, there's layers to uh, sin. We've talked about this a lot. Uh, the second aspect of sin or the second dimension of sin is that which is acceptable, that which society or even people in the church accepts and, and tolerates, right? If you're a Philadelphia Eagle fan, we tolerate you. Bad joke. All right. Um, it's, it's things that we, you know, things that we do. We tolerate um, gossip. We tolerate low-level lying. My, my prof in school, he talked about one example. Uh, he had a dentist appointment. He woke up, I think maybe a little bit late, and he got distracted. So he wasn't going to make his dentist appointment. So he called um, the secretary at his dentist and said, I'm stuck in traffic and I can't make it. He gets off the phone. The Holy Spirit convicts him. And he's like, oh my gosh, I just lied. So I love my professor. My mic is about ready to fall off here. Okay, we got it back. My professor uh, calls back under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, and says, hey, I just talked to you, Sally. We'll call her Sally. Sally, I just talked to you. I just got off the phone. I lied to you. I said that I was stuff, stuck in traffic. In fact, I got distracted. I, I, a rough night. I slept in. Please forgive me. Wow. It's powerful. And yet so many times we tolerate low-level lying. We do this with a lot of different things. We do this with shows. Well, my homeboy's watching this show, and yet it's just filled with soft porn. And it's, it's fragmenting your entire personality, and you don't even know it. So there's, there's acceptable sins that society accepts, or maybe uh, people within the church accepts. And then there's, we'll call it habitual sins. We'll, we could even call it neurobiological wiring responses. So when you're vulnerable, have you ever been in a vulnerable moment when you're just tired and you're exhausted and you're a little bit irritable and then all of a sudden you just, you have a wiring. Everyone say amen. You have a wiring in your vulnerability and it happens something like this. Someone says something to you and you become explosive. And it's not just what they say to you that sets you off. You were vulnerable and tired and you have this deep-seated neurobiological wiring around sin and anger and you become explosive in that moment. So we have gross sin, we have acceptable sin, we have what we'll call habituated responses that you've learned since you were a little kid. And then finally, the last one that I really want to focus on is uh, trust structures. We all have trust structures in our life. Trust structures are something like um, this emotional clinging to a desire. We can call this idolatry. So a desire that is elevated above the words 
of Jesus, the good purposes of God for your life. You cling to another trust independent of your relationship with God. So this could be something like, um, I need to be needed. And I can't live if people don't need me. Or it could be like, I got to be successful at all costs. Are you hearing me? Like some of you have lost your smile. (laughs) Bring the smile back, right? Like I just, I got to be successful at all costs. I mean, there's a lot of different trust structures that we have. Or or maybe I have to look a certain way in order to be loved, to be recognized. So I got to buy this and I'm a shopaholic. Or we can go on and on and on. There's there's, There's a thousand different, millions of different trust structures that we build our entire life around independent of God. And what we find in this passage that we just read is that any trust that is placed higher in importance than the words of Jesus is a trust structure that leads us away from joy. Wow, come on. So today, I'm just going to give you a, a quick little map of my way too long message. It's, gonna, it's not going to be that long. One, I want to talk about trust. Yeah. Two, I want to talk about the relationship of trust and rest. And then three, I'm going to bring it full circle and, talk, and try to tie trust and rest with joy. First, on trust. One of the deepest aspects of our lives is the way in which we all, everyone said we all, we all place our trust in someone or something. When, when the Bible uses the word believe, everyone say believe, believe, believe or trust, Uh, These are not just simply words freighted with religious or mystical meaning. Of course, believe and trust means to direct your allegiance to God, and I'm going to get to that here pretty quick. But, But here's the thing. We all, whether you're religious or not here today, we all trust in someone or something. In fact, it's impossible for you not to trust in something. Life, your entire personality begins to unravel when you lose complete trust in someone or relationships or in something. Like, okay, so I have a trust that when I go to Starbucks that someone's not going to spike it with some bad stuff. It's already spiked with bad stuff. But anyways, that's, right? that's another story. Like, I, I trust that when I go to bed and I'm sleeping soundly that my wife's not going to kill me with an axe, right? She's not going to murder me in my sleep, right? There's fundamental things that we trust in. You cannot exist if you don't have any kind of trust. So let's not do the disservice of saying, oh, trust is just for the religious folk. Believing in some mystical spaghetti fairy god. No. We all trust in something. We trust right now that the earth is spinning on its axis around the sun, and then tomorrow it will continue to do so. So we live from a place of trust. So what happens when you lose trust or lose a trust and you slip into what the author of Hebrews talks about, unbelief? Well, it would be something like this. My coffee, if, if my coffee is consistently filled with microdoses of cyanide at Starbucks, Guys, it will break the relationship that I have with Starbucks. Like, I'm not going to go back to Starbucks to get some more microdosing of cyanide. Right? It, it would, it would, I, I mean, I would have lost my mind if somehow, like, why would I even do this? I would just pretend like I'm a science guy, right? And I test the chemistry of my coffee. And I'm like, oh my God, there's cyanide in here. And I do it the next day. Oh my God, there's cyanide. Someone wants to kill me at Starbucks. But it would be lunacy for me after finding all that out to go back to Starbucks. You, if, if, guys, if there's no trust, you have no relationship. On a more serious note, what if someone consistently says that they'll do something and they don't over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? So, so trust is, and I just want to pawn this off on you, is a relational term. And when we come to the author of Hebrews, he charges the church, or let's say it better, he warns the church of the opposite of, of trust, and that is unbelief and the deceitfulness of sin. Not because belief, everyone would say belief, 
is a matter of abstract thinking and transcending like time and space or suspending logic. Rather, the author of Hebrews is focusing on trust because it's a relational thing. And because belief is all about being in a relationship with the living God. The Pistis word group, that's just fancy um, Greek language, uh, which describes in the New Testament, um, believe can also be translated as loyalty. So the word trust that when you f- and believe when you come to Scripture, you see that in the New Testament. That's the pistis word group, and that indicates not just putting your trust in God, but it also indicates loyalty. Indicates loyalty. So trust is all about building your life around the living God and his good purposes and promises for you. And you do it in such a way that you give your allegiance to God. Trust is not, I mean, this is the modern, modern way of thinking about trust. It's, or believe. It's freighted with, you know, religious Uh, connotations and we come into a building like this and we worship um, God and we say we got to trust God and somehow you know that all kind of works itself out in our lives and it's kind of how we think of what trust is trust is deeper than that trust when we come on a Sunday morning and we lift our hands in worship and we listen to a redheaded guy speak to us he's kind of funny and he's a really good preacher amen no okay Right? When, when we do something like that, we are making a statement that what God says about reality is real. And we're going to build our lives around that with loyalty. What God says about our bodies. What God says about the future. What God says about our money. What God says about our kids. What God says about our deepest longings and desires. What God says about our soul. What God says about our pain and our sin and our trauma. His word is absolutely ultimate. So trust is not just suspending logic. Trust is saying, I give my allegiance to how God defines everything from sex to success to respect to power. So if a political party is saying something different, you say, homeboy, no. Or if someone in your family is saying something different, and we love our families, but they're going against the word of God. Guys, Martin Luther said this, feelings come and feelings go, but one thing I do is I build my life around the word of God. Feelings are important. Are you hearing me? They're diagnostic tools that help us discover what's going on, but we don't live by them. We don't just simply live by opinions, and opinions can be good. We live by What God says is true and beautiful and ugly. And we build our life around that. Trust. Trust, trust, trust. For unbelief, the words in the words of Ignatius of Loyola is the unwillingness. I'll say it this way. Unbelief in the words of Ignatius of Loyola is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And I think this is where we all struggle with when it comes to this word word trust. When it comes to belief, believe. We struggle with this in mighty ways at times, and there's, there's no condemnation here today. With God, we struggle with really believing that we can have joy in this world, that we can really have peace, that God is actually available right now. Last week we talked about how God is closer than you can possibly imagine right now in this moment. And we struggle to believe that. And that's okay. There's a tension uh, that we all wrestle with. We're all on a continuum in life when it comes to trust. Some of us are really struggling today with trust. Some of us, maybe you're not struggling as much with trust. But we're all on that continuum. And there is a struggle. There is a tension when it comes to trusting God and believing that we can have joy. And, And the consequence of really struggling with trusting in God is that we suffer from a chronic restlessness. So we can't rest when we should rest. Isn't it funny on vacations? It takes like, what, 14 days to finally just like take a deep breath and like, oh, it feels good, you know? 
and then it's time to go. Right? It's, just fun. it's like we struggle with, with rest and joy because we're so restless. And I just want to make the argument, it could be the case that we're really struggling with a trust structure. Yeah. Yeah. Who is it that you're placing your trust in? What is it that you're placing your trust in? What do you believe that's going to give you happiness and joy and contentment and fulfillment? We have a trust structure, the world that is, we all, even as we continue to follow Jesus, that refuses to believe that God is good. We, we, it's, it's hard for some of us here today to believe that God uh, intends to bring all of his goodness to us and our family and our marriage and our bodies. We, we struggle. I get it. I'm there at times. Struggle to believe that God can take chronic illness and transform it and turn it around and make all things good. We struggle with going through deep pain and trauma and believe and, 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 and as we go through that, really believe that it's possible that God can restore the broken pieces of your heart. We struggle when we, when we make a horrible decision and, and we choose to go in the opposite direction of God. And then when we come finally to our senses that God can actually forgive us from our past. And as far as the east is from the west, God can come and remove your sin from you. We struggle, we struggle, we struggle with these trust structures that lead us away from God. As my professor often says, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. And world history, guys, please hear me, world history rhymes around a troubled unbelief. Wow. It's as old as Genesis chapter 3, the serpent in a minor key. I don't know how to say this. Did God, I don't know, I'm not going to do that, no. Did God, as he comes to Adam and Eve, first Eve, did God really say? Wow, just like, just a simple little question. Which, which intimates this just simple thought. Man, God's sort of good, isn't he? Maybe he's not as good as he thought he was. He thought he was, you said this, but are you sure? Have you ever heard a voice like that in your head? It's, it's as old, it's as old as world history. World history rhymes around this troubled sense that God is sort of good, but not fully good. And it's this troubled relationship with God's goodness that keeps us, keeps us, keeps us from what the passage in Hebrew says, God's Sabbath rest. Trust. Everyone will say trust. Yes. Trust is allegiance to the words of Jesus. It's saying, I'm submitting my entire personality, my embodied self, around how God defines reality. So good. And trust, as this passage in Hebrews tells us, leads us to what? It leads us to rest. Yeah. So what in the heck is rest about? You know what I mean? Some of you, we were reading this wonderful passage out of Hebrews, and it's, it's, it's written beautifully, but when it comes out in English, it's a little bit dense. You're like, what is rest? I'm going to talk about, quickly about that. There are three aspects of rest that this passage speaks to, but, but we all, I think, at the bottom of who we are, we want rest. No? We want, we want it. We, we want vacations, probably more vacations. We want maybe a new, new mattress would be great. A nap. Any nappers here today? We want a nap. It's funny. I, I had a conversation with my doctor. It was about like 10 years ago. and He's been my doctor for 30 years, so we talk about everything. And I asked him, and this is before I had kids, and he had kids. And I go, what is, the, what, is the, what is the one thing you want in this world? And I thought he would just, he's a really smart guy. And I thought he was going to go off on it. He goes, I just want silence. And I got to be honest, this is before kids. And I'm like, I don't need, I, I was like, you're so selfish. Be with your kids. Have joy. I'm just, that was my gut reaction at first. Now I have seven children. It's not my fault. Okay. It's my wife's fault. I don't know what. You're right. Three sets of twins. 
And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, that's all I want. I don't want to save the world, guys. I don't even want to be a great pastor. I just want five minutes of quiet. Nope. Okay, so we, we, we know something about this, guys, right? We want rest. We, we know the frenetic energy that's inside our soul that energizes us. Some of you woke up this morning and you couldn't put a name to it, but there was like something off. What is that? Well, we could call it restlessness. For some of you, it was maybe you're wrestling through um, anxiety. But we all have this sense of, okay, we want to get to a place where we're uninhibited by threats. Rest. Rest, rest, rest. Rest, however, is not just having a vacation. It's not just getting a new mattress. It's not just taking a nap, and a nap would be great. Rest within the biblical story, the biblical drama, uh, is not and I just want to say this really quick, is not about inactivity. It's not about like general sleepiness or it's not about just a state of, of being inert, right? Losing consciousness, you know, just kind of just checking out. Rest that we find in the Bible is a change of activity. It's a change of activity. Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says this. It's famous. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Does this feel beautiful to you? Four of you? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's so frustrating about this, because these are weary people that Jesus is talking to. Yeah. What's frustrating about this passage, Jesus doesn't offer a mattress, a vacation, a nap for those who are weary. What does he offer them? A yoke! Yes. I said that because I'm trying to wake you up. Some of you need coffee, right? A yoke? Yes. That's a work instrument. Yeah. Yeah. I need rest! And you're giving me more work? What is that? Obviously, yoke in, in, within the rabbinic tradition in the first century uh, indicated uh, the teaching of a rabbi. But there's something deep about this metaphor. You know anything about farming like I do? I know I do that all the time. Let me give you some instruction. Like I have ox. Like ox or oxen, the plural or the singular, I don't know. But you take one animal in the ancient world and you take an older animal, an older ox that is wise, that understands the rhythms of plowing. Like, oh my God, what are we talking about? This is a you know, gray area metaphor. Just go with me. So what ancient farmers would do, they would take an older, wiser ox who understood how to plow and they would yoke them or unite them to a younger ox. The younger ox, because of inexperience, would not know how to plow in a straight line. And especially if you're living in an agrarian economy, you, you need to be as efficient as possible. And so farmers would attach an older ox to a younger one, and the younger inexperienced animal would figure out the rhythms of plowing by being united to an older, wiser one. What Jesus is saying is, I so want to unite you with me that you can learn the rhythms of living in a complicated, broken, war-torn universe. That you can learn the rhythms of joy and peace and grace even when stuff happens that you don't like. Is it possible to experience righteousness, peace, and joy when you're going through difficult circumstances? Yes and no. No, if you're not united to Jesus. Yes, if you are united and yoked to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who understands the rhythms of grace, the rhythms of navigating the complexities of our emotional world and the complexities of this physical world and all the different things that we have to go through, good and bad. The only way that we can walk in rest is by learning the rest that Jesus gives him, gives us, excuse me, by being united to him. And what is that yoke? It's God's word. 
And I'm going to get to that point here in just a second, but I'm going to backtrack. And I just want to say this really quick. When we come to Hebrews 4, that was we read, it points out three aspects of rest. Number one, there's a historical drama rest. It's all about the children of Israel and their refusal to believe that God wanted to bring them into a good land. Kadesh Barnea, it's a famous story. You can find it in Numbers. You have 12 spies that come back, two of which say, say they have the same facts, guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They see the same thing, but they have two radically different interpretations. Yeah. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, hey, it's a beautiful land. My God, it's amazing. Yes, they're big what, giants, but we can take it. Yeah. The other 10 say the same thing. It's a beautiful land. There's large giants. We can't take it. Wow. Anybody the same facts, but different interpretation? Yeah. Which, man, it just says something about how we see the world. Yeah. Yeah. Like, here, let me say this really quick. I wasn't planning on saying this, but what does it feel like to be wrong? Come on. It feels like being right. Some of you are really wrong today and you think you're right. And what I mean by that, some of you think that your best days are behind you. Wow. Some of you think that, man, you are, you, you, it's impossible for God to love you because of what you have done. Wow. It's impossible for you to get out of this tra uh, trauma or this addiction that has so beset your life and become who God has called you to, to be. And you've, it feels so right, but you can feel so right and yet be so wrong. Yeah. And so the, the spies came back, 10 of which said that we cannot enter into the promised land. And the entire nation believed the 10 spies and God refused entrance to the children of Israel into the promised land. And this is what this whole passage is all about. Don't become like them. Yeah. There's a rest, there's land, there's fulfillment for you. Do not become like them. The second kind of rest Second aspect of rest is God of rest. God works six days, as the author of Hebrews tells us. And on the seventh day, what happens? God rests. And then we find Jesus promises those who follow him a rest. Let me say two quick things on the last two aspects of rest. And then I'm going to share one thought on the word of God and we're done. Are you guys cool? So God rested on the Sabbath on the seventh day. What does that mean? Well, I, I, you do a lot of biblical study, and there are a lot of wonderful scholars out there, and I think the best explanation is I've researched a little bit, studied a little bit, that God resting on the seventh day after he worked for six days means a sense of satisfaction. God rested. It's a sense of satisfaction in accomplishing the work of creation. It's delighting in a job well done. Yeah. As I mentioned before, it's a change of activity. It's, it's, it's going from work. Everyone would say work. 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 work, 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 right? It's a change from work to rest. Yeah. Uh, an example of this, my wife, she is, she's, she's gardening. And the one statement, and my wife's going to preach on this here pretty soon. I think it's such a powerful revelation she's learned as a gardener is that gardening is like spiritual warfare. Yeah. It is nuts. Like she has all these plants and like it's funny how there's like a specific bug. I didn't even know this stuff existed. But there's like a specific bug that will eat your specific plant and you got to be aware of that. Right? I mean, the time and the energy that goes into gardening is just extraordinary. One night, my wife um, planted lavender, and we had a raccoon. A raccoon? Like, they still exist, right? You know? <laughs> In our urban, modern society, a flippin' raccoon came, and I had to chase off a raccoon, right? Like, it is, it is nuts, just the work that goes into like taking care of your garden. One thing, though, that's been the bane of my wife's existence is called goat heads. It just, the spring came and the rain fell and we have goat heads everywhere. We looked it up, it's called the devil's weed. Perfectly, perfectly named. Flipping devil's weed, right? Like they're really small, but they have like a deep root system. And there's, there's another message that goes with that. We're gonna blow torch it one day, right? I cannot wait, we got a blow torch and pray for us, right? We don't burn our house down. Um, but we're gonna get to the point in my wife yesterday, she got to the point where she was able to remove a lot of the, the, the devil's weed. And she was able to create a space where she could then do the work of cultivating her garden. 
that idea from like working on the weeds and then transitioning into cultivating or into fulfillment of what you actually do is the idea of rest when God rested. He made creation, he rested, he delighted or he was satisfied with the work of creation and in his rest he was then able to go to work to do what he really wanted to do and that was to flood creation with his glorious presence. This is what rest means. Rest is not just sleepy. Rest is not just a, being in a state of inertness. Rest is going from working hard on the weeds and then moving into a place of flourishing. How many of you want to flourish? Rest is about fulfillment and flourishing. It is about the life-giving presence of God. To rest means to settle down into the love of God for us. It means to settle down into his promises, into what he says about our future. It means to become free from our work so that we can fulfill the good purposes of God for us. Rest. Rest. Settle down into the fulfillment of God. flourish get rid of the weeds that's what God is saying I'm going to get rid of the weeds the trauma the heartache the sin the stuff that just spoils the image of God in us so that and here's the problem I think so many people when it comes to church we just think that serving Jesus is all about sin management no 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 serving Jesus is about having life to the nth degree and yes Jesus will come and remove the weeds in order that we might have life in life more abundantly. So we come to verse 10. It says, for whoever has entered God's rest, his satisfaction, his delight, has also rested from his works as God did from his. And this is a, I mean, there's been many tomes written on this passage throughout church history. It's a complicated subject, it's a little bit dense, like what is God and his work rested from, what, what does all that mean? Because there's implications to that. But what does our work mean? What does it mean to rest from our work? Well, works here can mean a lot of different things, but I'm gonna just define it this way. It's any symbolic capital or trust structure that gives you worth outside the love that God has for you. As one scholar says, it's the work beneath the work. What's the work beneath the work? The work, how many of you say that work is good? Some of you say that work is good? Okay. I think work is good. How many of you believe God's called you to flourish? How many believe that God has called your work to serve the goal of human flourishing? Are you hearing me? That God wants you to be a blessing, to bless the world, that your work has inherent dignity to it. You know what? And I was teaching this on theology of work a couple weeks ago, but I love Boaz in the book of Ruth. Boaz was an extraordinary gentleman. He was a wealthy businessman. He was like, I don't know, uh, Jeff Bezos. And it's God who used Boaz to save the nation of Israel. He was generous to Ruth, a Moabite. They eventually got married, and it was their descendant, King David, who transformed the history of Israel. In fact, you can make the argument that Boaz, a wealthy man, a, not a priest, not a king, but just a wealthy businessman, transformed human history. So work is good. What do we mean by the work beneath the work? What I mean by that is as you work, you derive your entire sense of worth and identity from your work outside of God. So God's love for you is not the most important thing. The most important thing is being successful, improving yourself, and making it, and having achievement. And having all the things that Americans should have. Any symbolic capital, we call this works, that takes you away from God's good purposes, God wants to give you rest from. Because the work beneath the work, you know what it leads to? As I close here. 
it leads to frustration and futility. Like if, if you're going to put your entire identity into your work, we all know that many times our dreams and work won't materialize outside of God's grace. Many times when we come to our work, man, we, we might start strong, but everything just kind of peters out. And if you're not careful, if you put your entire identity in your work, and work is good, you're hearing me, but you put everything on the line in your work and you derive your entire sense of worth, it will drive you into a sense of futility. The work beneath the work leads to exhaustion. What does God want to rescue us from? The work beneath the work wants to rescue us from these trust structures that we build our life around that can never make you happy. Your success, that nice house, those nice shoes, that nice attractive partner, your beautifully manicured hair, your social media personality, none of those things can give you the happiness and the joy and the rest that's promised when we inhabit the story of the Bible. So So trust, rest. So how do we enter into that rest? How do we enter into the joy of the Lord, which is our strength? Verse 11 and 12, I want to read this passage as we close. Verse 11. Do we have that verse? There we go. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. How do we enter into the rest that God has for us? It's connected to the word of God. God's word, or we can call it God's story, is like a sword. It's living. It's active. It's alive. There's inherent power in the drama of scripture that we encounter as we read our Bibles and as we just settle deeply into the life that God has for us. The story of God is that transformative? The Word of God is alive. It's living, guys. It's not just some dead book. Not just some manual. Not just some philosophical gibberish. The Bible's not just going to teach you how to become a mystic. No, the Bible's the living Word of God. It's the story of how God is rescuing this world And there's an invitation every time we come to the Word of God. There's an invitation to become a participant in the drama of God taking sin and bringing death to it and turning around all the corruption in this world and bringing life and fulfillment and new hope where there was no hope and new life where there was only dead things. The Word of God is alive. It's active. So what do we do? What what is the author of Hebrews saying, which is key to rest, and which is the key to growing and maturing our trust in God? Well, the key, guys, is learning to submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. And he's not just talking about what? Yeah, of course we believe the word of God is alive and it's living and it's his story. And we have to submit our entire life, our entire selves to the word of God if we want to enter into the joy that he has for us. But it's not just the what, but it's the how. How do we submit to the authority of God's word so we can enter into his joy, so we can no longer work beneath the work, but rest in our work so that we can bring blessing to this world? How do we do that? Well, we find in John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples that if you want to bear much fruit, you must abide in me. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and he or she meditates on the word of God day and night, and they will make their ways prosperous, and they will have good success. 
Joshua chapter 1 says the same thing. Meditate on the word of God and you will have good success or the proper translation, you'll have wisdom. How do we submit to the authority of God's word? Because we're all on, we're all on the continuum when it comes to trusting God's word. Some of us trust the word of God a little bit more than others here. But again, that's totally fine. But how do we all grow? Whether we're trying to figure out if God is real and does he love me? With someone who's been in church for like 30 years and like, I, I feel like I know the love of God and I'm growing in the love of God. And I, I, however, I, I just know God has way more for me and I know there's some obstacles that I'm really struggling with and I need to learn to trust. We're all in that continuum, right? So how do we grow in our trust in the story of God? Well, we have to submit ourselves to the authority of God by learning to abide in God's story. Abide. The word abide means to dwell. It means to remain. It means to settle in. Like, could you imagine if you just bought a new home and it's just, it's just perfect? You just, you, you sign all the docs, you basically sign your life away, right? You gave a little blood and it's like, ah, right? And you go to your house, you, maybe your spouse, maybe your children, and you build a little tent and you live in the tent and every morning you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, the house is just glorious. And yet you never set foot Inside, you never bring a mattress in, you never get some couches, you never like get direct TV or whatever, young people, what are YouTube, right? You guys like YouTube, is that a thing? Like you TikTok, whatever, right? You never, you never like put, like curate your social media world in your house, right? You just don't settle in, right? I just, I've, I've, the word abide means to not just be on the outside of something, it means to be on the inside. It means to settle in. It means to get some couches and just kind of, this is your safe place, whatever, right? It's an oasis. You get away from the world, right? So you could just be in your home. That's what the word abide means. I, I am concerned that some Christians really do struggle with joy because they're not on the inside of the house yet. They're on the outside looking in and they have an abstract understanding of God's word and his promises. And we kind of give lip service on a Sunday to God's word and his promises and maybe some of the challenging portions of scripture and some of the tensions in scripture, but we're not living in it because we have not learned to abide in the word of God. Let me just say this really quick. The word meditate Simply, it's a Hebrew word, it's really evocative. It, it describes a lion devouring its prey. It's like I have a little multi-poo dog. It's my wife's dog, it's not mine, okay? <laughs> if I got a dog, you'd be about 400 pounds. Anyways, because I'm a man. All right. <laughs> but my, I, love, I love this 12-pound white furry dog. When we give him a bone, we go to the steakhouse, we come back, we love to bring a bone home and we give it to him. And this dog, oh my gosh, for two days. He's so old, he doesn't even have teeth anymore, but he doesn't care. He gnaws on it, he yelps, he makes strange noises. It's like he's on it, he's eating it. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's licking it. He's like, that's disgusting, but wow, right? That's the idea behind to meditate on the word of God. You see, the word of God is not just meant please hear me, to be heard every now and then on a Sunday. The Word of God is meant to be digested, consumed, eaten, devoured. Like you're, you're, Jesus said, hey guys, 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 you're going to be fruitful if and only if you learn to abide in my story and in my words and in my promises. Consume my words and when we learn to consume the words of God that is where we discover rest let me say this really quick you cannot have joy if you don't have rest you cannot have delight if you don't have rest your emotional world the emotional landscape of your inner soul your inner life which is designed to experience joy if you don't have rest you will never experience all that God has for you. 
And the way we enter into the rest of God is we submit, I'm gonna talk more about this, we submit our lives to the authority of God's word, his word, his promises, his definition of reality is what I submit my entire life to. And when we learn to pick up the words of God and enter into that story, our lives are transformed. As we close here, there are two, one thing I want you to do this week, maybe this month, maybe this summer. If you want, we're all in the continuum when it comes to reading our Bibles. Maybe some of you are like, I don't know how to read my Bible, and we don't have time to, to walk through that today. But I just... I would recommend for us as a church, what if we did this for three months? I bet you we would smile a lot more. What if we read a psalm, just I'm gonna make it easy. We read one psalm and one gospel a day every morning before we did anything else. What if we did that? Interesting study that just came out that when you read the Bible, it transforms your mental health. I mean, this is, this is empirical data that when people who read their Bibles, their mental health, their perspective, everything is transformed. However, the catch is, people who read their Bibles once a week or twice a week don't get any benefits from it. Wow. What did Jesus say? To abide. Yeah. So the evidence is coming out right now that you have to read your Bible four times a day. It's not just like, I have to. Yeah. But when you just enter into this dynamic living relationship with your Father in heaven and the Son and the Holy Spirit and you begin to abide in His presence, something, there's going to, an exchange is going to take place as you learn to abide. So four times a week. What if we did that four times a week for this summer? You get three days off. Some of you are already sweating. You're thinking, okay, at least I get three days, right? I totally get that. But what if we just, hey, Four days out of the week, we just choose to submit our lives to the authority of Scripture by reading a psalm and a gospel four times a week through the summer. We meditate. We eat it. We consume it. We get it into our hearts and our minds. I, I don't have enough time, but second service, you want to come back, I'm going to speak on some other things I think is really important. But I, th- I, I just think God has called us to a life of joy. Yeah. Come on. I want you to rest in your rest and rest in your work. Yeah. Come on. God has given us a Sabbath rest. That we can live from a place of rest and delight and deep satisfaction and fulfillment because of King Jesus and his love, his death on the cross. And he came bodily back from the dead. And now he's making all things new. Guys, we have the greatest news. Some of you are kind of giving me a sour face. Please don't do that. <laughs> this is amazing. Yes. The word of God is alive. Yes. Come on. Be happy. Yes. Sharper than you twitch your sword, and it cuts between the soul and the spirit and the joy of tomorrow is the discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Amen. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your grace today. Lord, we thank you for your presence. If there's anyone in this room here, you would say, Chris, I, I have a, maybe I made a decision in the past to follow Jesus. Maybe I haven't. But I know that I'm really not following Jesus. I'm not abiding in his words. I need Jesus today. And today I want to make a decision. I want to make a decision to submit my entire life to the authority of God's beautiful word. I want to learn to trust again that God is good. Everyone say good. He's good, he's good, he's good. He wants to bring his goodness to me and my family. And that today I believe that he can give me a brand new start. The Bible makes this very clear. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Now that Jesus is the king of the entire world, guys. That he took all your sin and your pain, all the suffering, all the negative scripts that deform your life, he took it in his body on the cross, defeated it, and through his resurrection, he released life. Today, because of the central event in human history, the death of Jesus and his resurrection, today, everyone say today. 
If you're not following Jesus, you can follow him and you can have life to the nth degree. It doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out perfect. No, no. It means that God's life for you, his joy, his peace will be made available to you. And you're right here with your eyes are closed. You're saying, okay, I need a fresh start, Chris. Maybe I've been, maybe I've followed Jesus in the past. Maybe I've never made a decision, but today I want to make a decision to follow him. I want, I want that exchange. Could you just raise your hand right now? I want to pray for you. Anyone like that? Thank you for that hand. Thank you for that hand. Thank you for that hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those hands that were raised. If you raise your hand, take your hand and put on your heart. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. Just want you to repeat this. It's an invitation prayer. It's not magic. You're just inviting Jesus to come in and take over your heart and your mind. The church would like you to repeat this after me as well. Jesus, I give you my life. I put my trust in you. I thank you that you forgive me my sin and that today I can have life and a brand new start. Make me new in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You give God a hand. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.